If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. It was Maundy Thursday, 1817, also known as Holy Thursday. Today, Christianity teaches that Jesus celebrated his last Passover before Easter. That evening in the sleepy village of Almondsbury, which lay eight miles north of Bristol, a strangely dressed woman began walking around town and knocking on doors. She wore a black gown with a muslin frill around her neck. A red and black shawl was draped around her shoulders, and she wore another black cotton shawl wrapped up in a sort of turban on her head. She carried a small bundle with her that only contained a few meager possessions, including soap and a few coins. Villagers began to notice as the woman went door to door, eventually making her way to the home of the town cobbler. But when the cobbler tried asking her what she wanted, the woman could only reply with a series of strange words in a language neither the cobbler nor his wife could understand. The unusual woman was able to sign to them using her hands that she was seeking food and shelter. They gave her some bread and milk, and afterwards the woman signaled to them she was tired and wanted a place to rest. But by now the cobbler's wife was growing increasingly irritated that her husband had let the stranger into their home. None of the villagers had any idea what to make of this mysterious stranger. The only two words that stood out among the language she spoke were the words caribou, the term she used when she pointed at herself, and nanas, the Indonesian word for pineapple. Instead of letting her stay the night at the cobbler's place, they took her to the overseer of the poor. A man named Mr. Hill, whose job was to bring anyone suspected of vagrancy before the Justice of the Peace. From there, Mr. Hill took the woman to the home of Samuel Worrell, the town clerk of Bristol. He and his wife Elizabeth were sympathetic to the plight of the poor, so they showed the woman some hospitality and tried to learn more about her. Now, the problem was they couldn't understand anything she was saying either. The Worrells had a Greek butler and he was just as dumbfounded as they were. So that ruled out both English and Greek. But there were still plenty of other languages they hadn't tried yet. It wasn't until they introduced the young woman to a Portuguese sailor named Manuel Enesu that they were finally able to translate some of what she was saying. According to Enesu, the woman claimed she was Princess Caribou from the Indonesian island of Javasu. She had been captured by pirates and had only managed to escape by jumping overboard, then washing ashore near Bristol. Between the translator and a lot of hand gestures, Mr. Worrell managed to convince the woman to write down her story, which she did in an exotic script. Worrell took those writings and sent them off to Oxford for some experts to study. In the meantime, Anesso became the woman's unofficial translator, and as word spread, Princess Caribou became a celebrity throughout England. For more than two months, the princess was treated like, well, like royalty. She stayed in the nicest hotels and fanciest accommodations. 
She performed native dances for crowds of magistrates and other wealthy elites. She demonstrated how she prayed to a god she called Alatala. The artist Edward Byrd painted her portrait and the city of Bath threw a ball in her honor. There even came one moment where the princess caused a bit of a scandal by swimming nude in a lake. English society found all her strange customs utterly charming. She was a vegetarian and she drank nothing but tea. She demonstrated her ability to use a bow and arrow and also showed off her skills at fencing with a sword tip dipped in poison. Over the two months Princess Caribou was taken on tour, several scholars met with the young woman, all of whom confirmed that the language she was speaking was indeed Indonesian. A doctor named Wilkinson examined her and noted that some marks on the back of the princess's head were the work of oriental surgeons. Princess Caribou's story appeared in several newspapers throughout the country, which is also what brought about her downfall. In June of 1817, a landlady named Mrs. Neal opened her morning paper and read an article about Princess Caribou. And she realized immediately that the princess's story was a complete fabrication. It turns out Mrs. Neal had rented a room to that very same young woman a few months earlier. Right around the same time, she was supposedly being held captive on a pirate ship. Mrs. Neal revealed to authorities that the young woman was actually named Mary Baker. When Neal met her, she thought the young woman was a little eccentric because she liked to wear a turban and speak in a made-up language. When Mrs. Neal confronted Princess Caribou, she was forced to drop the act, after which she admitted in perfect English she had made the entire story up. The scholars from Oxford who examined her writings determined it was nothing but gibberish, and also pointed out there was no such island called Javasu. It turns out that Mary Baker was actually the impoverished daughter of a cobbler from Devon. She had tried working as a servant girl, but had difficulty finding steady employment. The odd marks on her head Dr. Wilkinson had identified as oriental surgery were actually scars from a crude cupping operation she'd undergone in a London poorhouse hospital. Surprisingly, the public didn't turn on her the way you might expect. The British press had a field day with the way she'd been able to dupe London society. Mrs. Worrell took pity on her and helped provide her the money to travel to Philadelphia. There, the Americans were excited to meet this young con artist and hear her story. There was even one unconfirmed story about her that claimed a storm blew her ship off course to St. Helena, where she ended up meeting Napoleon in exile. In 1824, Mary Baker returned to England where she tried to launch an acting career, but that soon fizzled. She eventually married, and after that she launched a new career selling leeches to a local hospital. She died from a fall on December 24, 1864. Mary Baker isn't the only imposter throughout history to have fooled a great number of people. And in this episode, I'm going to tell you about a couple other famous imposters and the mysteries that followed. I'm Nate Hale, once again giving you a friendly reminder that this is an entirely fictional identity, and this is The Conspirators.
The Tichborns were an old English family with a lengthy history dating back before the Norman Conquest. One story that was recounted by Dracula author Bram Stoker in 1910 claimed that in the 12th century, as she lay on her deathbed, Lady Tichborne implored her husband to carry on and behave kindly to those in need. She begged him with her dying breath to donate a flower once a year to anyone who came to their gates begging for assistance. But Lord Tichborne didn't care for this request one bit and tried to weasel out of it by telling her that he would only donate flour that came from any land she was able to encircle before a flaming torch burnt out. Stoker wrote that Lady Tichborne managed to drag herself out of bed and mustered all her remaining strength to crawl around several acres of land which thus became known as the Crawls. The lady was then carried back to bed and she then said with her dying breath that as long as the annual giving of flour was carried on, the house of Tichborne would continue to prosper. If the practice were ever stopped, the family line would die out. So the curse went that the fall of the house of Tichborne would come after a generation of seven sons, followed by another generation of seven daughters. The annual tradition of giving out flour was continued until 1796 when someone in the family said it was encouraging undesirable people into the area looking for a handout. By 1821, Sir Henry VII Baronet Tichborne had had seven sons. After his death, his eldest son, Sir Henry Joseph, became the eighth baronet, and he went on to sire seven daughters and no sons. This appeared to mark a downturn in the family's fortunes. In 1827, James Tichborne married Henrietta Felicite, the illegitimate daughter of an English nobleman. Seven years later, in January 1829, they had a son they named Roger. After Henry died in 1845, the baronet title continued to be handed down through any male heirs. This also meant that Roger was now among those in line to inherit the title one day. Although the family fortunes were not as great as they had once been, Roger was still raised in a life of luxury in Paris. On April 20th, 1854, at age 25, Roger Tichborne finished up a tour of South America and boarded the ship The Bella, headed from Rio de Janeiro to Jamaica. Four days later, though, the ship's wreckage was found off the Brazilian coast. There were no survivors found. Roger's father, James, died in 1862, which would have made Roger the 11th baronet if he had still been alive. But since Roger went missing in the shipwreck, this meant the title would then be passed to his younger brother, Alfred. But Alfred wasn't exactly the most upstanding member of the family, and Lady Tichborne really favored Roger, whom she believed was the only son truly fitting of the family legacy. So Lady Tichborne went and contacted a clairvoyant who informed her that she was in luck. It turns out, Roger was alive and well. In addition to the clairvoyance prediction, some rumors had already begun to spread that the survivors of the shipwreck had been picked up by a passing ship and taken to Australia. All of this led Lady Tichborne to become convinced that her beloved son, Roger, was still alive and kicking. She became determined to find him. She put out numerous advertisements in newspapers offering a handsome reward to anyone who could provide information to what Roger's whereabouts. Then, in October 1865, after Lady Tichborne's ads appeared in several Australian newspapers, she finally received some promising news. During a bankruptcy hearing, a butcher named Thomas Castro from Wagga Wagga 
revealed some intriguing information about himself. He said that he had memories of surviving a shipwreck and that he owned property in England. He also smoked a pipe engraved with the initials RCT, although he couldn't remember where he'd gotten it. RCT were Roger's initials. Although the man came forward as Thomas Castro, you'll often find him mentioned in articles about the case simply referred to as the claimant. Over time, the claimant and Lady Tichborne began corresponding. And the more she learned, the more convinced she became that this butcher from Wagga Wagga was really her son. The claimant said he remembered he had been on board the Bella when it sank. He also recalled being rescued by a ship called the Osprey and that they had taken him to Australia, where he eventually made his way to Wagga Wagga, where he found work as a butcher. At the urging of the lawyer who had first brought this story to the attention of Lady Tichborne, the claimant then began making plans to return to England, including borrowing travel money using the Tichborne name as collateral. At this time, he also wrote a will which probably should have been another red flag considering it contained a number of factual errors, including getting Lady Tichborne's name wrong. The will listed her name as Hannah Francis, where her name was actually Henrietta. While the claimant was in Sydney, he ran into two former servants for the Tichborne family, both of whom believed he was Roger. That is, until the claimant began begging them for money, causing one of them to backtrack and say they weren't so sure anymore. It was difficult for anyone to tell for certain if this really was Roger Tichborne. If it was, he had put on a considerable amount of weight. Prior to going missing, Roger Tichborne had been rail thin, but this man claiming to be Roger was easily 200 pounds heavier, and he kept putting on weight from there. By the time the man arrived in England on Christmas Day 1866, the claimant weighed nearly 400 pounds. Although some people thought this was just good old Roger living life to its fullest. There were others, though, who began to speculate that this was all just part of the man's ruse to obscure his true identity. When the claimant finally arrived on British soil, he tried to go see Lady Tichborne, but was informed she was living in Paris. So instead, he traveled to East London to try to meet with a family named Orton, but they too had moved away. He told a neighbor that he was old friends with Arthur Orton, one of the richest men in Australia. When Castro finally did meet with Lady Tichborne, she took one look at him and proudly proclaimed him to be her son. She gave him a monthly allowance of £1,000, although it appears Lady Tichborne was alone in her belief that this man was Roger. There were a few family acquaintances, including the family doctor, who claimed to see some physical resemblance between the claimant and Roger Tichborne. But by and large, most people remained skeptical. At the same time, this strange man was able to tell people details about Roger's childhood, such as certain fishing tackle he liked to use or the name of the family dog. But on the other hand, there was mounting evidence that the claimant was a fraud as well. His letters to Lady Tichborne were full of misspellings and grammatical errors. Despite Roger Tichborne being well-educated, he also didn't speak French, despite the fact that Roger was fluent since he'd lived much of his life in Paris. He also didn't recognize his own father's handwriting, and he couldn't remember any details about his old boarding school. In addition, before Roger left for South America, he had left a package in the care of one of the family servants. But the claimant couldn't recall what was inside. The claimant explained all this way by saying the shipwreck had caused amnesia, and his memory was only coming back in bits and pieces. 
Then in 1868, Lady Tichborne died, cutting off the claimant's path to the Tichborne family fortune. In 1871, the family brought a civil trial against the man which required him to prove that he was Roger. In the meantime, the family had hired investigators in Australia who managed to dig up plenty of damning evidence. Over in Australia, there were a number of people who identified Thomas Castro as really being Arthur Orton, the son of a butcher from Wapping, London. The prosecutor theorized that Orton saw the advertisements Lady Tichborne placed in the papers and saw a way to cash in and improve his station in life. He also suggested the servants Orton met in Sydney may have been bribed to provide personal details about Roger. Despite all this, the claimant steadfastly refused to admit he was Orton. The prosecution prepared to bring in more than 200 witnesses who had testified to the man's true identity. But a much simpler solution presented itself when it was revealed that the man didn't have some tattoos that Roger Tichborne was known to have. The man claiming to be Roger Tichborne lost the civil trial and was almost immediately prosecuted in a criminal trial for perjury. The resulting criminal trial turned out to be the longest ever in English court, lasting 188 days. A handwriting expert claimed the man's handwriting matched Orton's, not Roger's. It was also revealed that while there had been a ship called the Osprey that docked in Australia, the claimant couldn't provide the name of the ship's captain nor any of its crew nor did the ship's logs ever mention picking up any shipwreck survivors at any time. It only took the jury half an hour to find the man guilty. He ended up serving 10 years of a 14-year prison sentence. During that entire time, he only admitted to being Arthur Orton once, and that was when a journalist paid him. Once the convict had the money in hand, he immediately retracted his confession and went back to swearing he was Roger Tichborne. There remained some confusion after the man died in 1898. He was buried in a pauper's grave, yet for some reason the Tichborne family actually allowed a plaque to be placed on the man's coffin that identified him as Sir Roger Charles Doty Tichborne. This same name was also listed on the death certificate and other burial records. Thus, it seems especially fitting in that case to point out that the man who claimed to be Roger Tichborne died on April 1st. Better known... As April Fool's Day. This episode is brought to you by Surfshark. This video is not available in your location. Does that sound familiar? If it does, then let me tell you why a VPN is the solution to your problems. A VPN doesn't only increase online privacy, which you need, trust me, and helps you avoid hackers. It also helps you access entertainment because the content you see is limited by your geographic location. But if you use a VPN, you can change your virtual location and forget about restrictions and censorship. Can't find what to watch on Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, or other streaming platforms? Unlock new libraries with a VPN. Can't watch a YouTube video? Connect to a different location with a VPN. Can't access certain websites or apps through school or office networks? Try a VPN. So try Surfshark risk-free with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Get Surfshark VPN at Surfshark. Dot deals slash TC. Enter promo code TC for 83% off and three extra months free. You heard me right. Three extra months for free. That's surfshark.deals slash TC. And now, back to the show. 
They say that finding true love is magic, but in the case of the marriage of Martin Gare and Bertrand de Rolls, both families literally blamed sorcery as to why things got off to such a rocky start. In the French village of Ardigat in 1538, the Rolls and the Gares were two prosperous peasant families who decided to join their clans in holy matrimony. As was common in the 16th century, the families married them off young. At the time, Martin was only 14 years old and Bertrand was around 9 or 10. Nowadays, we can pretty much assume the real reason things started off so poorly was because of the considerably young ages of the bride and groom. But back then, nope, it just had to be sorcery. It would take eight years for the couple to finally consummate the marriage, during which time a huge family fight broke out after Martin's father accused him of stealing some grain. Things grew so heated that shortly after, Martin up and vanished, abandoning his young wife and presumably fleeing all the family drama. But eight years later, after the death of Martin's parents, the man unexpectedly returned. And it was Martin Gare's sudden return that inspired a mystery that carries on until today. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. At first, everyone was thrilled to have Martin back. Upon returning to Artigat, Martin told everyone that after he left, he joined the Spanish army and fought in the Netherlands. But this experience had changed him. He was now a much more confident figure than he'd been before he ran away. He was also kinder and gentler, and he slipped effortlessly into the role of family patriarch, as well as a much more loving husband to Bertrand. Then late in 1558, Martin went to his uncle Pierre and asked him for his share of the profits the family farm had earned while he was away. Pierre didn't like this one bit. He angrily pointed out that while Martin was busy gallivanting around Europe, he had to step up and not only assume the responsibility of running the family farm, but also taking care of Martin's wife and young son. Pierre's distrust of his nephew only grew over time. Things really came to a head when a pair of soldiers passed through the village who said they'd served with Martin Gare. Except they claimed the man they had known lost a leg during the war but the Martin Gare who returned to Artigat still had both his legs. Pierre became convinced that the man claiming to be his nephew Martin was an imposter and a con man out to steal the family fortune. This dispute led to a series of trials that culminated in an appeal at the Parliament of Toulouse in 1560. It was one of the judges, Jean de Carras, who literally wrote the book on the case, which went on to become the primary source of information about what really occurred. 
During the trial, most of the citizens of Artigat, as well as a number of people from several surrounding villages, were called to testify. Among the witnesses who took the stand claiming Martin Gare was a fraud was Pierre, Pierre's sons, and Bertrand's mother, who had actually gone on to marry Pierre over the years. They even brought out the village shoemaker to testify, and he claimed that the new Martin's feet were smaller than the man who left the village years earlier. Then several citizens of the nearby town of Lapan came forward with even more damning testimony. They all claimed the man calling himself Martin Gare was actually a former villager, a rather sketchy individual named Arnaud de Thiel, a.k.a. Pensette. Although all these witnesses looked bad for the defendant, there were also a number of witnesses who came forward in his defense. These all claimed the man on trial was, without a doubt, the real Martin Gare. This included Martin's four sisters, who all swore up and down that this was their brother. Martin even testified in his own defense and confidently answered all the court's questions about his identity. One person who refused to say for certain one way or the other about Martin's true identity was his wife Bertrand. Initially, she had signed the complaint that led to the trial, but as the trial wore on, she began to backtrack and refused to swear that this was not her husband. This all left the various judges, including Jean de Carras, at a complete loss. On the one hand, they had to take into consideration the strong financial incentive Pierre had in denouncing his nephew. He potentially could be out a lot of money if this truly was Martin. They were also struck by the man calling himself Martin's forthright attitude and eagerness to testify, not to mention the fact that Bertrand herself was no longer willing to say for certain this was not her husband. Throughout much of the trial, the judges came to lean in favor of this being the real Martin Gare. That is until a shocking development occurred that immediately swayed everyone's opinion. That was when a man walked into the parliament, a man with a wooden leg, who said his name was Martin Gare. The defendant vigorously objected. He insisted this man was the real imposter and he must have been paid off by Pierre to discredit him. The defendant tried peppering the newcomer with questions only the real Martin would know. But this development was devastating to the defendant's case. It even caused Martin's sisters to desert the defendant and side with the man with one leg. Then they brought Bertrand into the courtroom, and as soon as she took one look at this stranger, she burst into tears. She threw herself into the man's arms and begged his forgiveness. That was all it took for Cross and the other judges to abruptly change their tune. They found the defendant, who they now confidently referred to as Arnaud de Thiel, alias Pancet, guilty of imposture and false supposition of name and person, as well as an additional charge of adultery since he'd been sleeping with Bertrand this whole time. He was sentenced to hang. The execution took place in Artigat on September 16, 1560. Right before the day of execution, the man calling himself Martin Gare made a full confession. He said he was Arnaud de Thiel, and he got the idea for the fraud when an acquaintance of Martin pumped into him one day and mistook him for Martin. After that, Arnaud began learning everything he could about Martin Gare, then took this knowledge back to Artigat and attempted to convince Bertrand and everyone else that he was the real Martin. On the surface, it seems like a neat and tidy conclusion to the story. But to this day, many questions remain open. In particular, how could this imposter have managed to dupe an entire village, including Martin's own family? 
Carras would go on to explain this by stating that Arnaud was a remarkably talented con artist. He even admitted a begrudging admiration for the man's skills of trickery. Carras also took a typically sexist view of Bertrand, claiming she was just a weak and gullible woman who was grateful to have a husband, any husband back in her life, take care of her. As for the remarkable timing of the return of the real Martin Gare, Carras concluded that this was just divine intervention. This explanation was good enough for everyone who read Carras's book, A Memorable Decision. His memoir was reprinted five times in six years as it flew off store shelves. Several more editions were published in both French and Latin over the following century. In 1561, a young lawyer named Guillaume Lasseur published his own account of the case that came to much the same conclusion. But not everyone was convinced by the facts of the case. The renowned essayist Michel de Montaigne expressed doubts about the official version of events. Montaigne stated that Cross and the other judges would have been better served by following the example of the ancient Athenians, who, when faced with a particularly difficult problem, would return to it a century later to reconsider matters. Montaigne also felt that no matter the truth, the death penalty was far too harsh a punishment for the purported crimes of this alleged Martin Guerre. Even despite the influence Montaigne had, Carras's historical record remained the official story until the 1980s, when both a French filmmaker and an American historian decided to take the Athenian approach and revisit history with a fresh perspective. In 1982, a popular film titled The Return of Martin Gare came out in theaters. The following year, Natalie Zeman Davis, who served as a consultant to the screenwriters, published a book with the same name. In both the book and film, Bertrand is portrayed far differently than she appears in Cross's account. In Davis's version, Bertrand realized from the very beginning that this man claiming to be her husband was a fraud. But she went along with it anyway because it turned out Arnaud was a much kinder and gentler individual than her actual husband had ever been. It was she who filled Arnaud in on the details of Martin Gare's life, which he then recounted on the witness stand. But once Pierre turned on Martin, Bertrand realized her position was in jeopardy. So she made the desperate but calculated move to actually appear to side with Pierre at first by signing the complaint against Martin. That way, if Pierre won, she could still plead ignorance and avoid his wrath. At the same time, she thought she could work behind the scenes to damage Pierre's case. Either way, Bertrand felt she could come out on top. In her best-case scenario, she could help convince everyone Arnaud was really Martin, and the two of them could live happily ever after as man and wife. But all Bertrand's plans came crashing down when the real Martin Gare returned. In order to save her own skin, she had to abandon her lover, and accept her real husband back into her life. What's interesting about the screenwriters and Davis's version of events is it doesn't require any new evidence to consider this to be a possibility. It just takes looking at the same recorded facts and considering them from a different angle. Davis herself claims she came up with her version primarily by a careful reading of Carras's book. Davis said she found a level of ambivalence in Carras's writings that made her consider whether there might be something more going on behind the scenes. She even began to speculate whether there were certain details Cross attempted to suppress. Throughout Cross's book, he constantly talks about his desire to keep Martin and Bertrand together as man and wife. 
Davis began to speculate whether this might be because he knew more than he was letting on. Davis also points out that after the real Martin Gare made his surprise reappearance, the man remained highly skeptical of his wife's motivations. Even though ostensibly the real Martin forgave Bertrand, he still cast scorn on her for being so easily duped by this imposter. It appears religion may have also played a factor in Cross's mixed feelings about the relationship between Arnaud and Bertrand. This was the time when the Protestant Revolution was sweeping through southwestern France. And although most of the citizens of Artigat remained staunch Catholics, it's possible Bertrand would have been attracted to the Protestant belief that a wife who was deserted by her husband could remarry after a year. Although Bertrand never publicly expressed such beliefs, Davis considered this another possible explanation why she would be so anxious to pull off this deception. Although Carras was a Catholic, it appears he too was sympathetic to the Protestant movement, which may also explain why he initially leaned so heavily on believing Arnaud was Martin. In fact, Carras got in his own hot water over his soft spot for the Protestants. This led to him being executed for heresy in October 1572, in front of the very same parliament building where the false Martin Gare was executed. Although the film and Davis's book proved to be quite popular, this didn't mean it was readily accepted by all mainstream historians. Some historians criticized Davis for turning the historical record into something more akin to a romance novel, although still others criticized both Davis and Carras for so easily accepting that the man with one leg who appeared before the court really was Martin Gare. Some people have pointed out it wouldn't have been too difficult for Pierre to have found a one-legged man back then and paid him to impersonate Martin. In fact, film historian Anthony Gunaratne added another wrinkle to the story when he speculated that perhaps Pierre and Arnaud were working together at first to perpetuate the fraud in order to secure Pierre's control over the Gare land holdings. But after the men had a falling out, Pierre was forced to find another imposter to pretend to be the real Martin Gare. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Ale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Bill for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. I'm also currently working on expanding both my Patreon offerings as well as growing and making this show even better. So stay tuned. Another way you can help support the show is to check out our merch store, where you can purchase all sorts of conspirators' t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and much, much more. If you're interested, I'll put a link to both my Patreon and store in the show notes. Yet another great way you can help us out that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can also find our show in most of the places you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Stitcher. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us along on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even write us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.